0: You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody, and welcome a day. Welcome to Mosaic Church Online. My name is Morgan. So glad you're here with us today. Let's begin with our scripture reading. It's going to be from the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And that's the reading of God's Word. Again, hi everybody. Welcome. So glad you're here. This is your first time. We sure hope it won't be your last. Let me just give you a quick sneak peek of what's coming up next. Next week here at Mosaic, and you'll know this if you follow us at all on social media, but next week is our annual back to school service. I love this so much. We'll be highlighting and celebrating all that God is doing in and through the next generation of students. We'll be having special music, special videos, dance, a message, all that I hope will inspire every single student, every single teacher, every parent of every student who's certainly in it to win it with them this year. And of course, hope it'll inspire those who love all our students and parents and teachers. That would be you. So please make plans to join us. 830, 10, 31 It's gonna be great. But today we are wrapping up this series we've been in called One Another, where we've been looking at how we fill in the blank with one another. We've been asking, what word should we put before? What word should go before that amazing little phrase, one another? And this, I think, is an important question because... There are a lot of potential answers to that question if you look around today. Right now, if you look around, you can fill in the blank with something like this. Answers like troll one another, call out one another, cancel one another unfriend one another. And maybe there's some good reason for some of those. Maybe not. But either way, what you can know is when it comes to how the people of Jesus ought to fill in the blank with one another, there's one more, one more, one another that I want to look at today. There's one more way we're supposed to fill in that blank and one another, one another. There's one more way we're supposed to do that. But what is so fascinating about this one another is that it shows up in in the strangest place connected to the strangest thing. What is it? Well, again, we read that one another in the passage a moment ago when Paul the Apostle writing to a group of first century Christians who were being persecuted and marginalized for their faith, losing their lives and property for the sake of their faith, Paul wrote this to them. He wrote, therefore, encourage one another with these words, So he says we should encourage one another, but he doesn't stop there. He says specifically, encourage one another with these words. Well, what words are these words? Well, if you look closely enough, Paul is saying, encourage one another with these words about death. About death. Encourage one another, he's saying, about how death works. Encourage one another about the end of your lives, how death is going to go for you. At which point you're like, what is he talking about? But before you turn me off today, before you you switch over to Amazon.com and just buy yet another thing that you don't need, hang with me. Because no matter how old you are, no matter how young you are today, you have an enemy you say, Morgan, I sure know who that is. It's the other political party. No, not talking about that. Every single human today listening, whether you're 10 or 100, we all have a common enemy, and that enemy is Death. It's death. How are you going to face that? How are you going to handle that? And I think this is an important question because right now I think it's safe to say that death is all around us in ways we did not see coming in 2020. We never thought was possible. And so I think it's also safe to say that a lot of us are not handling it well. To which the Apostle Paul would say a number of things, real quick, he would say, number one, I know you're not handling it real well most people don't handle it well but you can handle it well so let's talk about that that's my goal today then i want to encourage you with these words and if you'll give me a shot i think i think no matter how nervous you're feeling about it right now i think you just might walk away feeling more encouraged And you came in feeling today. So I want to try to ask and answer in light of that four questions about death today. Number one, I'm going to ask, what does our culture do with it? Number two, what did Jesus do with it? Number three, what do Christians do with it? And then we're going to personalize it and ask, what will I do with it? But let's begin here, number one, and ask the question about death. What does our culture do with it? We'll begin here in verse 13 where Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, meaning those who died, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind, humankind, who have no hope. So Paul says right here off the bat, all humans Everywhere, struggle with death. Somehow, some way, he's saying every culture's response to death betrays the truth and betrays the fact that they have no hope. So what does our culture do with it? How does that show up? And as we talk about this, I just want to expand our definition of death just a little bit for the sake of this conversation, because, wow, some of us have truly, literally experienced the death of a loved one already this year. We've also experienced lots of smaller deaths this year. Death through distancing, the the death or the loss of plans, the loss of relationships, the loss of time, jobs perhaps, moments with family, summer plans you don't get back. I could go on. What do we do with loss and death? I think there are four main ways our culture tries to to deal with it, to cope. First of all, we're going to look at these in turn real quick. First of all, we ignore death. That's our first response. We ignore death in our culture. Why? Here's why. It's because feeling feelings about death, feeling feelings about losses, it's not practical. It's not sensible. doesn't help us get ahead in life. So we stuff them down and we push them away. Someone by the name of Aldous Huxley, he was a writer of that book, A Brave New World. Some of you were forced to read that in high school. He had this advice. He said this, ignore death up to the last minute. And then he said, when you can't ignore it, drug yourself so you don't feel anything and die in a coma. And then he concludes like this, it's thoroughly sensible, humane and scientific to act this way. And by the way, this is literally how he died. Aldous Huxley, the writer of A Brave New World, died with his wife pumping him full of psychedelic drugs. He ignored death. But I think it's safe to say that death did not ignore him. Second response to death our culture has. We don't just ignore death. We also deny death. And here's what I mean. Someone by the name of Ernest Becker was a Jewish writer. He literally wrote the book on this response. It's literally called, wait for it, wait for it, the denial of death. Yeah, and he he researched America and he looked out at America and he said to us, he said, listen, y'all will do anything to run away from death. He said, Americans, we're all basically all like little MC hammers. Sorry, not sorry for the Gen X throwback right there. We say to death, you can't touch this. Then we go out and we try to get a career. We try to get a relationship. We try to get an Instagram following. Why? To feel meaningful. To feel powerful. To feel immortal. We deny we are mortal by trying to get a name for ourselves. And you see this denial of death that spills over into popular culture as well. We, we just can't let our favorite celebrities go. We deny they're gone. I mean, think about it. Like Elvis. He's still alive, right? Tupac, still alive. Jim Morrison from the door. still alive. Michael Jackson, we say, he's still alive. He's still moonwalking, still working on that comeback album, says the Internet. And by the way, why is it always singers that we can't let go of? We deny death. Third response, we don't just ignore it or deny it. We also fear death. If you've seen the classic Bill Murray comedy, one of my favorite movies, What About Bob? At one point in the movie, this great scene, one of the characters, he's an eight-year-old, I think boy named Siggy. One night at bedtime, this young boy asks the Bill Murray character, Bob Wiley, he said, Bob, are you afraid of death? And Bob Wiley says, Yes. And the eight-year-old, he's sort of this budding child philosopher. He says, me too. We are all going to die. It doesn't matter if it's tomorrow or if it's in 80 years. And he looks over at Bill Murray, he says, or much sooner in your case. (laughs) At which point Bill Murray's eyes get really big. Why? Because he's realized something true. That no matter the precautions he takes, death has a way of finding its way in. We fear it because we can't control it and we're not sure what happens after it. But fourth, fourth way our culture deals with death, we don't just ignore, deny or fear it. We also normalize death and This is our actually modern approach. Now today we say, and we are the first culture in the history of the world to do this. We say today in the West that death is normal. There's nothing to be frightened of. That we are all just sort of living in this Lion King loop, the circle of life, and it's all good someone by the name of Peter Kreft. He's a super famous Roman Catholic philosopher. He tells the story of this neighbor friend of his. Again, you may know the name. Peter Kreft has this conversation with this woman who lived next door. And the woman had a seven-year-old son whose young cousin had died. And she told Peter Kreft the story of her conversation about having to talk to him about the loss of his cousin. She said her seven-year-old was so sad. So she said she came to her son of the boy and said this. She said, your cousin has gone back to the earth from which we all came he's gone back into the earth death is a natural part of the cycle of life and so so son when you see the earth putting forth those flowers next spring you can know that your cousin's life is fertilizing those flowers and the little boy looked at his mom and he screamed i don't want him to be fertilizer And then he ran out of the room and Peter Kreft said the mom said she was surprised by her son's reaction. But Peter Kreft says he knew the reason why she was surprised. And maybe you can see it too. The mom was surprised by her son's reaction because she had been trying to deal with death by normalizing it. By giving it this modern evolutionary sugar-coated spin But that young boy's reaction is way more honest, it's way more true, and it's what we all know, that death is not normal. It's horrible. It's an aberration. And all cultures at all times have known this. But we are the first culture in the history of the world to try to normalize it. Oh, but thankfully, mercifully, if we're fortunate, some young 7-year-old will walk into our lives and tell us the truth. We ignore death we deny death we fear it we try to normalize it but I'm going to tell you today don't do those why because they're not encouraging they're actually hopeless responses and also number two as we're going to see right now Jesus of Nazareth didn't do any of those when it came to how he handled death Number two, let's ask, so what did Jesus do with it? How did he handle death? Well, we're going to look now at what Jesus did at the tomb of his friend Lazarus when his friend Lazarus had died. What did Jesus do? Well, first, contrary to our desire, instinct to ignore death, to move away from it, Jesus goes toward it. He makes a trip to go be there in the middle of death. He didn't stay away. And when he gets to the tomb of his friend and he witnesses the whole funeral scene when he sees how death has hurt people, here's what it says that he did. John 1135, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He doesn't ignore death. Jesus doesn't stuff down his feelings. He doesn't dismiss his tears as impractical or getting in the way of his ministry. No, his tears were his ministry. See, Jesus doesn't ignore death. He weeps over it. Second, contrary to our desire to deny death, that is to make a name for ourselves that we think will last forever, do you know what Jesus is doing right here. Well, if you know the background of this story of Lazarus's tomb and where it fits in the gospel of John, you know that that this moment right here, this is where Jesus really gives his life away right here. This moment, this miracle is what triggers the Pharisees. This is what pushes them over the edge. They're standing around watching him right here, wondering what he's going to do. They're afraid that if he raises Lazarus, the people will abandon them and follow Jesus. They're afraid of losing their name and power. And Jesus knows this is going on. He knows if he raises Lazarus in front of everyone, he knows what will happen. He knows that at this point, it's either Lazarus or him. If he raises Lazarus, if he brings his friend out of the tomb, it means he will go into one. But he does it. And this is the last miracle Jesus performs in John. Why? Because right after it, he goes into Jerusalem where he is crucified. Jesus doesn't deny death. That means he doesn't use his power, ability to get a name for himself. No, he doesn't deny death. He over comes it by giving his life away. Third, contrary to our desire to fear death to avoid risk at all costs, what does Jesus do to his disciples right before he raises Lazarus? It says he actually leads them into risk when he hears that Lazarus is sick. Look what he does. Verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days and then he said to his disciples, "Let's go back to Judea." But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. You've got to love Thomas. He understands plainly what's going on. Jesus is leading him into real risks. See, Jesus never promised us a risk-free life. He never promised that your life, my life, would be a moment-by-moment safe space. What does He promise us? That in this world, you will have trouble. But that he actually is our safe space. He is our refuge. Like he says to Mary and Martha here in a moment, in the middle of their disease-ridden, oppressed society, he says, I am the resurrection of a life. He who believes in me, though he dies, will live. See, following Jesus, it is an inherent risk. It brings us into conflict with evil, with the devil, with ourselves, our own desires. But we don't have to be afraid. Why? It's because Jesus doesn't fear death. No. In the end, he defeats it. And fourth, contrary to our desire to normalize death, what does Jesus do? I love this. When Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus face to face with where his friend is buried, it says this quote, he was deeply moved in spirit, And troubled. Oh, but I want to tell you, this doesn't capture at all what this is meaning here in the Greek. This phrase in the Greek means that Jesus, oh, is snorting like a horse, he's making this animal like guttural sound at the tomb of his friend. This is telling us his soul is racked with pain for what has happened. And so I want to tell you, if there is one moment, if there is one scene in all the Gospels that makes me at least want to believe, if there's one scene that I think ought to make you at least want to believe, if you don't believe, that Jesus is the Son of God, it is this scene right here. Because the one, can you see, who claimed to be God, here he is. He is standing in front of a tomb. He is Convulsing with the cocktail of sorrow, of grief, of anger at the state of the world. See, in a world full of sorrow, Jesus became our man of sorrows. And so I want to tell you today, if you've never seen it before put like this... This is how God sees and feels about every tomb today. This is how God sees and feels about every loss in your life today. The pain of every Mary and Martha and Lazarus, every George Floyd, every Beyonce Taylor, every Maude Arbery, and now Jacob Blake. That is how he feels about the tomb of every loved one you or someone else has lost through COVID this year, every other disease this year, every loved one you've perhaps lost in the past in a car wreck. At the hands of a drunk driver or to some disease that your child should never have had to experience and you had to bury uh, someone killed by their government for preaching the gospel or someone who drowns in a hurricane he howls he screams at the tomb of every loss today Jesus Christ is not some modern sophisticated person who normalizes dresses up something that should never be normalized he's way less like that modern mom caught in the lie of the circle of life, he's way more like an honest seven-year-old who knows this isn't how things are supposed to be going in the first place. See, Jesus doesn't normalize death. He protested. He protested. And so should we, because when we protest death, we keep it from becoming normalized. When we howl at tombs like Jesus, we keep it from being normal, just a run-of-the-mill status quo. When we stop, though, showing up at tombs, when we stop talking about it, when we stop protesting death, we normalize it. And therefore we lose what it means to be human and who we were supposed to be in the first place. Jesus refused to normalize death. So should we. Which brings me now to this, to number three. So what do Christians do with the den? What are Christians supposed to do with it? Put it like this. While we protest death, yet, yet, we do not handle it like the rest of the world does either. Paul says right here to this church in Thessalonica, we're supposed to encourage one another with these words about death. And I I love that word, encourage. In the Greek, by the way, it's the word parakaleo. It means to come alongside, as in I come alongside you. You come alongside me. As the kids say these days, I gas you up. I come alongside you. I get your tank full. You get my tank full. Parakaleo, one another with these words. Even in the face of all you've lost, Paul says. He's saying, like a good rub. On a stake. Mix some hope in with all your grief. All right, Paul. So let's do that. What are you and I supposed to gas each other up with? Look at verse 14. It says, For we believe. Why don't you say that with me? Say, For we believe. Say it again. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. What's he talking about? Well, on a smaller scale, yeah, about the resurrection from the dead, which is amazing. But he's also pointing us, pointing us to a larger truth, that the renewal and the restoration will take place through the power of Jesus as the resurrected Son of God when he makes the world right. And the end result of all of that is this truth, Paul says, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Oh, and here, here, here is where it gets good. Because here is what it means. Let me list off some reasons for you. It means that unlike Eastern religions, where it tells you your soul just dissolves into the all soul, like a drop of water in a bucket or the ocean. No, the Christian faith says, no, that true Personal, bodily, individualized, physical love lasts, dissolving into the all soul. It sounds nice, sounds poetic, but it's ultimately depressing because it means your existence is over. You just dissolve like some special effect in a Marvel movie. No, but the return of Christ, the bodily resurrection from the dead, the restoration of all things, it means that true personal love lasts. It means that you as a person will experience the unfiltered, an exquisite love from the person of love, Jesus Christ for forever. You know, you know that discouragement that you're feeling right now in 2020? Yeah, it'll be gone. You know that depression that you've struggled with for years? Gone, but it's even better than that. It'll be replaced, replaced for forever with what you really want. To be really known and really held and really affirmed and really told that everything is going to be okay True personal love will last. Oh, but it's even better because this means that unlike traditional conservative religions where you're judged exclusively by your moral performance, those who belong to Christ have their past washed clean because of his moral performance. Yes, what you do counts, what Jesus does counts more. You don't have to worry, did I live a good enough life? Jesus lived it for you. Oh, but unlike secular, Liberal religion today, where what you do doesn't really matter. Everybody gets away with everything because God would never actually judge anyone. No, what the resurrection means is this, that Jesus is the judge. He's a good, fair, trustworthy, perfect judge. His justice system is flawless. He will examine up close every life, motive, action and deed. No one gets away with nothing. And what it means finally is that unlike the bankrupt religion of atheism today, which says that there is no God, there's no future existence, no heaven, no hell, your life now is meaningless, but don't think about that. No, what the resurrection means is that you can have meaning and happiness right now. Because of what will happen then, as Jonathan Edwards put it in his first sermon as an 18 year old, because of the resurrection from the dead, you've got three reasons to have meaning and happiness right now. He said, because of the resurrection, number one, your bad things will turn out for good. Number two, it means your good things can never, ever be taken away from you. And it means that your best things are yet to come. Oh, love that last freedom from sin, new body, perfect justice system. The best things yet to come? Yes. You said. Morgan, I don't feel any of that right now. I say, I know, I know. Let me just say this. In our own way as Christians, when we scream these things, when we scream life into the face of death, when we scream peace into chaos or love at hate, when we do these things, we are doing Christian mission in the world. When we do this in our own smaller way, we are like Jesus. We're we're howling, pounding at tombs all around us. No, we don't ignore death. We don't deny it. We don't fear it nor do we normalize it wherever we find it. No, we encourage one another with these words that Jesus came into this world once. He died and he rose again. And he, therefore, is coming back again as he told us. And in the meantime, we follow him to every tomb. We comfort every Mary, every Martha. And then we say to every dead thing, holding our brothers and sisters in a cold grip, we say, take off those grave clothes and let them go. Which brings me now finally to number four. Last question. What do I do with this? What will I do with these words? Right here, Paul shows us the first of two decision points that every person gets to and must make. These words, he says, look at this, he calls them the dead in Christ. The dead in Christ. What does he mean by this? I think he means this. That to receive all that God has for us then, the dead in Christ will rise. To receive all that God has for us then, we have to be one of those in Christ right now. Which means for you today, no matter if you're new to Mosaic or you're just here online kicking tires or somebody promised you lunch, if you would just watch today, no matter who you are, biblically speaking, Paul is saying there are two types of people. Those in Christ and those not in Christ See, to be be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus means that you have placed your trust in Him. Your everything in Him. Your whole trust, as best as you understand trust, you're trusting Him to be God. You're trusting Him to be your goodness. You're trusting Him to be the leader of your life. You're trusting Him to be the one who not only forgives you, but who gives you power over sin. Today, you're trusting Him to be your rescuer through death. And you begin to place your trust in Him when you say, Jesus, I am yours. I trust you. Would you forgive me? Would you receive me? And when you do that you now receive in return what a whole lot of smart people have called the outside, the alien righteousness of Christ. Meaning it comes on you like a a perfectly tailored suit or dress or uniform on the outside. You didn't deserve it but you get it. And then now on the inside you get to experience what John Wesley called the great privilege of the children of God. You get to be born again and be part of God's family in Christ. What Paul is telling you is this. Oh, if you're in Christ like that in life, you'll be in Christ with Him through death. Not just capital D death. No, no. I want to encourage you now to make a second kind of decision about what you, maybe you're experiencing now with your lowercase little d deaths. I wonder how many of you right now you're watching this on your phone, hearing us on a screen, would say, You know, I'm like a Lazarus, in my own kind of way. I feel trapped in some tomb today, some tomb of pain or loss or separation or anxiety. If that's you, I would say, I know, man, I've been there too. It happens in life, but I want to tell you, you don't have to stay there today because Lazarus didn't either. At his Lord's command, he heard those words. And he got up. So I want you to hear these words right now. Whatever dead thing it's you're carrying or feeling, to hear these words right now like Lazarus heard that day. Come on up. Go ahead and get up. Come on out. Let the dead in Christ rise. If you're in Christ right now, I want you to hear that Jesus of Nazareth has resurrection power for you in your emotions, in your body, in your marriage. I am speaking to every grave cloth of sadness, discouragement, and disappointment right now. Come off the people of Jesus and let them go. Let those in Christ rise. Friends, friends, let us encourage one another with these words. Hope you can say amen to that. Let me take a moment and just pray for you right now. Lord Jesus, we come to you. We thank you for this promise, that there's encouragement in these words. Lord, I'm praying for our hearts to be encouraged, that we would remember all that your resurrection means for us today, that we don't have to grieve or mourn as the rest of the world does who have no hope. Lord, give us courage to show up at tombs, courage to comfort the grieving, Lord, encourage to speak life even in the face of overwhelming odds. I thank you for this grace being ours today because of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.